Hello, hello, and welcome back to the 19 TFA Daily Walk-Up Podcast of our Walk-Up Series. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we've another exciting episode for you all today. Quarterfinals are well underway, and two more sides have been eliminated from the competition. There was a massive shock in store in the early fixture yesterday, as favourites Brazil bowed out early after a penalty shootout defeat to Croatia. Chichi has since stepped down from his post after consecutive World Cup quarterfinal exits, while Zlatko Dalic has guided his side to the World Cup semis in back-to-back tournaments now, which is an amazing feat. Meanwhile, there was a fiery clash between two titans of different continents, as Argentina defeated the Netherlands on penalties, just as they did in the semis in 2014. Unfortunately, Louis van Gaal has now retired. That was his officially, well, <laughs> as we understand, officially his last game in professional football management, which is a very, very sad loss for the game. The star of the match, however, though, was referee Matteo Lahosh, who broke the record for the most yellow cards in the competition's history in one game. What should have been one of the best World Cup matches in a long time ended up being spoiled by the whistle as Lahosh blew for four, 48 fouls over 120 minutes and handed out 15 cards, but no reds. Argentina will now face Croatia in the semi-finals. Let's hope that Lahosh isn't refereeing that one. There's a lot to get into, but thankfully I'm joined by TFA analyst Satish Prasad, as well as Running Dog Media's head of betting and affiliates, Lucas Mondelo. But before we get into the tactics from each game, Lucas will be going through the latest odds on the betting market regarding each team. So we ask that you make sure to gamble responsibly when taking the advice on board. And also make sure that you are over 18 and that you fully comply with the regulations of your country. So without further ado, let's dive right into the analysis. Lucas, Satish, thank you so much for joining me today to review yesterday's hectic uh, quarterfinal fixtures. Let's jump straight into things, though, and start with the early clash between 2018 finalists Croatia and favourites throughout the tournament, Brazil. Brazil are out, and Chiche is gone. He's officially stood down from his position as the manager of the national side. Lucas, I'll come to you first on this, then. 2019 Cup America winner. They obviously lost in the 2021 final to Lionel Messi's Argentine, as people like to call it. He got to the quarterfinals of the 2018 World Cup, quarterfinals of the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. Is Chiche a failure as Brazilian manager? I think the answer is yes. And, uh, you know, locally in Brazil, people pretty much go with the... The results and uh, there's a short memory for you know football facts and stuff like that. So you you have some pretty bold things that stand out in my opinion in terms of stats and in terms of uh, how this preparation for specifically this World Cup happened. That to me kind of never justified uh, in the betting markets why Brazil was the clear favorites. I never agreed to this. I never said this this way here, but that's exactly how I see the beginning of the World Cup. Mm -hmm. And the situation is he called 122 players in six years. And there wasn't really a repetition of the lineup, which is always something that prepares winning teams. Formation was changed constantly. The first time he tried this formation with Neymar as a midfielder was this, this the second friendly um, that he had. They had two friendlies before the World Cup, one against uh, Tunisia and one against Ghana. 
and it was like uh, almost in the work of the you know about to start he tried for the first time like a month before for the first time the lineup that would be used in the quarterfinals and the Croatia has been using this team for a while Brazil lost the game in a very clear way in the midfield with 25 15 minutes played you could spot that tactical problem and he did nothing. There was like a completely unjustified substitution of Vinny Jr. yesterday, which no one understood in Brazil. So it's like I could go on and on. There is a you lot. You think of he was problems. playing well though? Not, I'm just playing devil's advocate because, well, I suppose this is a bit of my opinion as well. I, I don't think he was excellent, and he was not as direct as he was against South Korea. I was a little bit disappointed with and Satish, me and you were speaking about this before the podcast started. Rafinha as well. I thought the pair of them were. Uh, they 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 kind of they weren't direct and they were disappointing really overall. Do you think it? Why do why do you think it was a hard substitution then? I guess there was not exactly a quick fix, but um, he could add some team chemistry from Real Madrid. If he had sub in the Rafinha and used Rodrigo, then maybe he could play a little closer to Vinny Junior and he would see some action that could you know help them find some some easy passes and assists and because Real Madrid is incredibly you know versatile as a team these days they I think that's one of their biggest strengths they can you know Ancelotti can use players like Valverde and, and Rodrigo in, in many ways even Modric can play in different uh, ways sometimes more like a central midfielder sometimes like an attacking midfielder which means um, I never liked the formation itself. I think Lucas Paqueta is a guy that was pretty much an attacking midfielder um, until quite recently. And Fred may not be, you know, the level of player that you want in the national team. So in my opinion, the only true aspect of, you know, a good midfield that you had was Casemiro. And he was alone. And Croatia had a very solid line of three that pretty much did the homework yesterday. Mm -hmm. Even though they were a lot more tired than the Brazilian team, the fixtures, you know, helped Brazil in terms of resting more. And that's it. I guess that it was the kind of problem that a good manager had to spot. You couldn't simply allow the game to be played in, in the second third of the, the pitch, the way it happened. And these things were like, um, he seemed oblivious to why Croatia was, uh, you know, not exactly dominating, but not being even close to, um, you know, being exposed to danger as everyone expected. Satish, just kind of touching on those points. I, I was... A bit taken aback by Brazil's almost predictability at times, especially in the final third. I look at players like uh, Vinicius Junior and Rafinha would always kind of have the same idea. And while I don't believe they played very well, you know, there wasn't really much support in terms of overlaps from the fullback because, well, Brazil don't really play that way. Whereas if he, you know, per se, Chiche had a player, a Renan Lodi, who didn't even go to the World Cup as a left-back, who's with not Forrest, but was with Atletico Madrid for a couple of seasons. He can kind of, when Vinicius Junior comes inside, he can make those overlapping runs and give you a bit of diversity. There was not really any of that. And then also the fact that Roberto Firmino wasn't brought to the World Cup. 
He, you know, I, I felt yesterday, and it's the only time I felt like this throughout the World Cup. So again, hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, let's let's be very clear about that. There was times where I believed that Roberto Firmino dropping deep could have pulled players out of position where they Croatia looked pretty comfortable in that box. And you see them for the goal. It was, you know, Roberto Firmino can can do that all game. Uh, what I think, I can't remember who played the link up with Neymar. I can't even remember the goal came to fruition. But anyway, Firmino's so excellent at that dropping deep and, and creating space for others to run into. And I just think a guy like that would have been really useful to have in that game rather than just such a static centre-forward in Richarlison. That's not a criticism of Richarlison. That doesn't mean he's, you know, he's just not a false nine. That's okay. Uh, I suppose what I'll, I'll ask you is, were you, were, you, were you taken aback by the predictability, essentially, that Brazil had on display in this one? Yeah, I think I was taken back by the predictability. But more than that, I think I, what I felt was it's the versatility that they lacked this World Cup because we knew the, what their game plan was. Like what, like you actually just mentioned, they didn't overlap with the fullbacks and they completely depended on Rafina and uh, Vinicius Jr. to like penetrate through it. So that's where you know, it be, they became too predictable. And in fact, I think Richardson into the half, like into the first half, say for, for the first 13 minutes, he probably had the least touches on the pitch like I, I like so that's where I think Firmino would have played a very good role like dropping back I think he would have personally combined very well with Neymar but yeah of course there was instances where Vinicius Jr like he there was this one touch with Richarlison where like the shot was on target but then in terms of the options in terms of attacking options I think they ran out of attacking options which is probably why he had to make substitutions like the, I mean every like I personally thought Rafina's substitutions were like good. I mean, it made justice because I, I I didn't see Rafina even like penetrating into the box. But then I thought Vinicius Junior's substitution was a bit harsh because he is the kind of player who could change the game within seconds, you know, right? Like the sudden pace and his shot, like his goal scoring abilities from a tight angle. I think, and in terms of Rodrigo versus Vinicius Junior, I think Vinicius Junior has a Hataran. So I think that substitution was a bit hard. But I again, I think. It's with a lack of idea that they had, you know, they had to do something new. Mm-hmm. So they, he probably thought bringing, bringing in a new player could have, could probably change the way Brazil approaches the game. But again, you were right. I was disappointed with how predictable they were. I think I agree that bringing Anthony on for Rafinha was a good substitution because, well, I, while Anthony was very theatrical, I think it's fair to say, in the game, and, you know, I won't accuse him of. Of diving, but I, I personally believe he may have done one or two little flops on the floor. But still, he was much more direct than Rafinha, and he actually did look like more of a threat. And he was quite excited when he came on. And yeah, exactly. I, 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 the, the moment game, he came in, I yeah. think he had a through pass also. Yeah. Right? So I think the immediate, the moment he came in, there was immediate impact. And the game needed excitement. But one player I was a bit surprised didn't come on throughout the game at all really was Newcastle's Bruno Guimaraes Lucas I'll come to you then before we get talking about Chiche himself Bruno you, you actually touched on yourself uh, Lucas Paquita is, is is you know I suppose a more advanced player and Casemiro was being tasked with being the sole ball progressor really for Brazil and they struggled whereas you see with Croatia they had Modric in the midfield and they did not struggle to progress the ball because they had Luka Modric, who is exceptional at progressing a ball. I think apart from Lionel Messi, uh, Modric has the second most amount of progressive passes or line-breaking passes, apologies, in the World Cup this season. Bruno Guimaraes, though, is an excellent ball progressor too. What, 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 
talk to me then. Did you, I mean I could I could be talking on my backside, but do you do you believe Bruno could have came on and, and had an impact? Because I certainly do. I think several players could have contributed more if there was uh, more team chemistry in in a formation that was a little older, you know, that had aged a little mm -hmm. to become more useful. And this is what I mentioned in terms of, you know, when you have 122 players called in six years, it doesn't help. And uh, even if Paqueta was, like, trained in this spot for, like, two years, you're going to be almost like a defensive midfielder formally. And you are expected to have contributions in the man marking and then you can think about progressing the ball or even Guimarães or whoever was tasked with that you can test this missing a month to the World Cup in the last friendlies so it's like I think this is the deeper issue here and not exactly a discussion over names well then let's talk about the this was the elephant in the room then this Chiche is gone um they're Currently are no odds. I mean, I've, I I asked you prior to the podcast to get odds on the next manager. There currently aren't odds on who will take over. Lucas, just in your own opinion, really, who would you like to see take over from the national side? And do you think it will? Do you think it will be a non-Brazilian? I suppose is the is the, the best way to put it. Considering, with the fullest respect, I don't think there's many top Brazilian managers out there right now that are, I suppose, still managing because Scalari can't have a tour to stint, surely. Well, in Brazil, usually there wasn't even a discussion, and you know, foreigners weren't even considered because of. Uh, I think it's more like a matter of pride than anything else. Or mm -hmm. you have a cultural background that is common to players. Sometimes the players are not really much uh, used to the European culture, and I don't mean football. I mean in general, because. You usually have players coming from a poor background in terms of, uh, you know, um, wealth and, and how they they develop in the world of football to, to help their families. And sometimes communication with the players, especially the younger ones, can be tricky. And that's why only Brazilian coaches, I guess, could do the job properly sometimes in terms of uh, having a conversation about what what this team means to the nation or what it used to mean it's changing a little right mm -hmm. now so uh, i don't think a foreign coach couldn't be considered but it's the first time you know that we actually see this as a real possibility which means a lot more names can eventually be ventilated by the federation but uh, personally i think there is one name that could do something interesting about this, which is Grêmio's coach, Renato Gaúcho. Someone may say it's because it's in my town. It's the, the, he manages the team that I supported my whole life. But it's not even close to that. I, I guess that <clears throat> I've been one, one of his fiercest critics in the last times uh, at, at the club level. But um, he represents, you know, a passion for not just a national team, but the way, you know, the national pride for for the, the school of football of Brazil is represented. And he definitely is the, the guy that his players love the most. So in terms of the relationship with the team, it would be unseen, uh, you know, the amount of... Uh, 
not exactly morale, but uh, a good environment, a good mood in, in the dressing room, which is something a new cycle could definitely use. At the club level, he's uh, controversial in, in, in some ways because of, uh, let's say, training sessions are not as hard as it used to be and stuff like that. But uh, it's a name that was ventilated for a long time before Grêmio had problems and was relegated in, in the season of 2020. Mm. But uh, right now, um, you have a situation in which I think that he's not perhaps the most uh, favorite contender, but he's a name that you know the world is going to be um, seeing in the, in the next articles in the coming days. You have naturally Dorival Jr., who was the winner of the last Libertadores in Brazil Cup with Flamengo. But I don't think he was taken that seriously because I think Brazil understood. Uh, I mean, the public eye saw that um, he was just, you know, fielding an expensive team with amazing talent that has chemistry between them. So even though he won great titles, he didn't even have his contract renewed. Flamengo now signed with the former coach of Corinthians, which is a Portuguese coach, meaning that uh, you have at least eight to ten names considering Portuguese trainers who, uh, you know, um, could eventually be ventilated at least. So it's a hard time to predict anything. It, the question is more like, as you said, to ask people, who would you like to see in this position? In the past, we had Guardiola, I mean, D Guardiola being asked uh, if he would like to do so. I mean, and I, I think it's a question we're out of the admiration for the old names of Brazil in the 20th mm -hmm. century. <clears throat> and uh, the, the end result was recently when the Brazilian Federation learned that uh, his wages are in the house of 58 million euros a year. He was, let's say, um, discarded for now. Sean Deutsch is available. No, I'm joking. Well, you, you spoke about uh, Renato Gaucho and Will, or how he's quite a controversial figure. Let's move on to another controversial figure then. Matteo Lahosh, who ruined 120 minutes of World Cup action yesterday. I don't want to discuss the referee because I will get very passionate and angry. So we'll talk about the actual mm -hmm. game at hand, Satish. Talk to me then about Argentina and how they, well, how Netherlands really struggled against Argentina, I suppose. And we'll, we'll get on to Vudveig Horst in a minute, but we'll talk about for large parts of the game. I mean, Argentina completely shut down the Netherlands' game plan really well. So talk to me about that. Uh, I think Argentina lining up in a 3-5-2 was a really good thing to do because when they were in a 3-5-2, like in the defensive transition, like while defending, they were actually in a 5-3-2. So this way, they were able to nullify the wing-backs of Netherlands. I mean, yesterday I didn't even see Dumfries having an impact on the game, apart from his uh, like 1v1 battles with Akuna. I, I don't feel like he had a very greater impact. So this way, there were three centre-backs for Argentina, and, they were, and within that, they were able to nullify the two strikers. So this way, they had one extra defender at all costs while defending. So this gave them a numerical advantage while defending. Likewise, if you take in the mid, like when three played like three midfielders, they were able to completely close down the three midfielders of Netherlands. Like, yeah, Frankie was good, he was there trying to create some change. Mm -hmm. But I think the man to man marking by Argentinian midfielders, like 
it was too good especially and something that i personally felt was like made the change was like how aggressive argentina were in the press like literally uh, i in my preview for netherlands versus argentina game i mentioned how important depay would be in terms of team's progression i initially like the first i think the first ball that depay got he was fouled so it like they were trying to like shut down the flanks so i think that was good and i think argentina were trying to force netherlands to play through the flanks and i think they achieved that because in terms of entries into the final third netherlands they had 15 entries through the right 11 through the left and they had the least through the center but netherlands who had a similar plan against usa where they forced the opponents to move towards like play in the flank they tried to mm-hmm. keep the center compact they failed against argentina i think that this is partially because how messi kept dropping back you know like attracting players so that way he was able to play the ball in center so in terms of how argentina progressed they had 17 entries through the right flank and they had 13 entries through the middle so i think that is where it stood out and playing a five man defense i think that while attacking it gave the wing backs the width previously when they were they were playing in a 433 like we couldn't see molina akuna like going mm. too forward but yesterday the goal scorer was molina and it the, it gave them the freedom to move very high so i think that was a very i mean that's how argentina were able to nullify netherlands threat but at the same time if you ask if netherlands performed well in terms of defense i think i would partially agree with that because argentina they had 15 shots on total with six being on target and out of this 15 shots 10 shots came from outside the penalty area mm. so this pretty much you know like indicates how it was hard for argentina to go inside the box and they had to take chances and a lot of, a lot of that came as well in the uh, extra time where it was very hectic so i think over the 90 minutes i don't think yeah, yeah, yeah. were that bad defensively if you take into consideration that it was a penalty they gave away for the second goal and it was a a ridiculous pass yeah. from Messi for the fourth one which is no shame really to concede that kind of a pass to Messi exactly but but i would like to highlight this everyone talks about how molina like he was up high like up high the pitch and how mm-hmm. messi was able to create that wonderful pass but i'm not sure if everyone noticed i think another factor that was important in that goal was julian alvarez run like i'm not sure if you guys noticed like when Messi was moving in like Alvarez was moving away from Molina creating mm-hmm. that space like he pretty much was the reason behind that space he was dragging Van Dijk along with him yeah. because if you see the highlights like Van Dijk was actually moving along with Alvarez and once the pass was played Van Dijk was like oh shit I should have been there so he quickly moved towards that but by the time it was a goal so I, I was critical of Van Dijk it. I was critical of Van Dijk for the goal I'll, I'll explain why because you said he's Alvarez is there and I agree Van Dijk is forcibly stepping out of the defensive line because he's sitting on Alvarez. You have the guy next to Van Dijk. He needs to communicate with him to take Alvarez to allow him to drop a couple of yards. And if he drops a couple of yards, then he's able to block the pass. And Rio Ferdinand on the BBC was very critical of Daley Blind because Daley Blind allowed Molina to go inside. My issue with that is there's also and it's not even people aren't even speaking about this. There's an Argentina player out on the left or sorry, on Argentina's right, uh, Netherlands's left. So if Daley Blind goes too far inside and that ball switched out, nobody's there to get across to this player. So Daley Blind can't go too far inside. He's gone in close enough to Van Dijk where it's now Van Dijk's job to block the passing lane or drop. Leave his man with the other guy because there's plenty of time. But he doesn't and there's no communication. And I don't want to be overly critical because 
ultimately not I mean the only player in the world that would have tried that pass was Messi so Netherlands yeah. thought they were okay yeah, yeah, yeah. you know they thought they were okay so it's I'm I'm probably being very harsh but I did think Van Dijk could be I, I just thought he could have done a little bit better for the goal but anyway I'm quite a, yeah exactly a that's probably game. because Van Dijk Van Dijk had this thought like Julian Alvarez like mm. because no one we probably thought this pass was going to go through Alvarez because he was making the run so yeah, again, it's partially like I mean, no one would have expected this pass to be made, but yeah, yeah. Van Dijk was a bit like he could have done better in that situation. Well, then, in terms of communication, they give they give away a penalty in the second half, and it's all over. Messi scores again to make it two 0 but then, dude, Veghorst comes on. He also brought on Luke De Jong as well. It's it's worth saying to ginormous centre forwards. And change their approach, and they score two goals, including a 104th minute goal, which was an incredible free kick from Vudvek Horst, which he scored before, by the way. So it's it's quite an interesting routine. He's done it at both Besiktas and Wolfsburg. But then the Netherlands change their approach again, and they stop going long towards Veghorst and De Jong and try and revert to their all game plan while they had momentum. Satish, I. I'm trying to struggle for the way to phrase this question. Why? <laughs> this is essentially the best question I can ask. Uh, I think the first thing, the reason for like Argentina considering two goals is because I think after scoring two goals, I think they were convinced that they were going to win because after because only after Netherlands scored that one goal, it felt like the intensity was back with Argentina because at one point it was like only Messi was the only guy in the attack and the entire team was defending. So... Mm. Towards the end, it felt like oh, even towards the end, Netherlands started committing more people up front. So even you know, even Van Dijk was playing like a striker to get the like to meet yeah. the, to meet the crosses and also I, I think Argentina at that time they should have received the ball because they kept losing possession immediately to Netherlands. So that probably added on pressure. But instead, if they had tried to like hold on, you know, like uh Instead, they should have tried to slow down the game because it felt like they once Netherlands started scoring, they lost control of the game. Mm-hmm. And it was not until the last 30 minutes that Argentina were back in the game. So I think they were they were hoping that they don't push the game into the last 30 minutes. So that is why they were completely into defending. But in terms of Netherlands, I think their tactic of bringing in Luke Dion, the long balls, and then make like hoping that, that he connects the ball, I think it was more to do with like their tactic sudden no it's like a last minute plan. not i wouldn't say last minute plan but a last go to plan right you know plan like b really if, it was, yeah yeah exactly if nothing goes right this is our last option so i think that's why they went to it because they wanted to see a change in it so I but think then they kind of like they, reverted to plan a again which baffled me because yeah yeah that is going that is so probably because swimmingly <laughs> because it's not something that you could rely on for the entire 30 minutes right because I, I personally feel crossing the ball into the striker and like you know constantly the striker trying to score. I mean, it's not something you could rely on to for 30 minutes. But given the profile of the striker, I think it was a bad idea to revert to it, revert back to your plan A. But uh, yeah, and I mean, it was so successful for them. And okay, yeah, maybe it, w- it wouldn't have. They didn't have to do it every single time they had the ball, but just a, a few more times would have been nice. I mean, it was. They were eating Argentina's backline alive. They they couldn't cope with it. They're they're just too physically strong for Argentina to deal with. Otamendi struggled. The Santa Martina struggled. They all struggled. 
but they kind of just after the second goal went in right went right okay let's go back to we're back to scratch back to square one and and just started playing again their normal game which had gone horribly for them throughout the game but anyway Lucas Brazil are gone there's you know who's who's the who's the king of the, the table now in terms of the uh, the eyes of the betting market well you have a situation that is kind of um, a reflection of the you know the brackets right now because um, you still have France and the England to have a big game in a few minutes mm. and um, before Argentina's game yesterday it was France you know topping the um, the expectations with the lowest odds in the outright markets but now as they have uh, the big game between them Argentina that is already in the semifinals has odds of 2.89 on average then you have France with 4 on average and then Portugal with 5.6 So that will change tonight now that after the game's end yeah. say France and Portugal both go through you expect them to kind of overtake Argentina then yeah, the point being that, um, you know, th these uh, odds are available mm -hmm. almost always during the tournament, unless something really crazy is happening. Let's say, for example, a VAR review, a long one um, of a penalty that could change everything, it uh, usually blocks not only the match result uh, markets, but uh, other, you know, markets such as the, the alt-rights one. So there are some uh, freezing of the markets that are constant during the tournament, but they don't last longer than five or ten minutes usually, mm -hmm. because uh, the book is even know more or less what kind of odds will be released after each result. But right now, for example, it if if someone checks the markets without an understanding of how they work, it, it would be easy to assume that uh, the community sees Argentina as a better team than France, Portugal, England. And, and all the rest, but it's not the, the point. The point here is you have Argentina at a further stage, mathematically there, and you have two potentially better teams that still need to progress to the semifinals. So this is what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. Well, look, let's hope Mateo Lahosh doesn't referee another game at this tournament. I haven't looked at the rest of the fixtures to see who does, but if he does, I will not be watching. Anyway, Lucas, Satish, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed this chat. To all the listeners at home, I hope you enjoyed too. And make sure to tune in tomorrow as we review the games between Morocco and Portugal and England versus champions, France. So make sure to check back in for that. And please, please share the podcast too, as it really helps us grow. Thank you all for listening and goodbye for now. <laughs>